This really is all about him, isn't it? It's a good thing. It's a good to acknowledge. You know, sometimes Christians are the best liars. You know that? Sometimes we're the best liars. Now, not intentionally. It's not what we're blatantly going out there. But sometimes we say things that we don't really think through. And there may be a hint of truth in it, but there's a lot of falsehood about it as well. And I just want to look at some of those things that Christians say sometimes that may or may not be true, if, depending on how you mean it to be, but it can come off as a falsehood. One of those things is following Jesus will give you peace. Now, in some ways, that's very true. You can sense a peace of God in your life. You can sense a, there's a, a battle that may have gone on in your soul, and, and when you come and give yourself to Jesus Christ and you follow him, it feels like that battle ceases. So in some sense, that's true. But in another sense, if you mean by that that following Jesus means you're not going to experience any problems in life, then that's not true at all. You know, many of us can say that following Jesus makes life even harder and it gets more challenging. And so that's one that's there. Another one is the safest place to be is the will of God. I've heard this one a lot. And, and again, I, I think the, you could say the best place to be is the will of God, but it's not always safe. If you look at the Apostle Paul, he was beaten, he was flogged, he was tortured. But I wouldn't say that he wasn't in the will of God. So I, I don't know if that's totally true, that the safest place to be in the will of God. I think the best place for sure to be is the will of God, but it may not always be safe. Life is so much easier as a Christian. Again, it depends on what you mean by that. If you mean that when you go through difficult times, you have somewhere to go and you say, man, I don't know how people get through life without Jesus Christ in their life. Well, then that aspect is true. But if you mean that, again, you're not going to experience trouble or pain or heartache or sorrow, then no, that's not true at all. Or all you have to do is pray a prayer and you're saved. You know, especially in the evangelical world, we've developed this thing that if you just pray this, what we call the sinner's prayer, then you can go on and live however you want and, and make sure that, and then that'll be a surety to you that you'll be in heaven. And that's not true at all. Jesus calls us to follow him and believe in him in such a way that we surrender our lives daily and we follow him daily. And so with all these kinds of questions and thoughts that fly around our heads, it, it begs the question then, what does it really look like to follow Jesus? What does it really, truly look like to follow Jesus? And what I'm grateful for is his word that guides us and leads us. Because the beautiful thing about the Bible is it is so clear in the essentials of the Christian faith that it guides us and leads us into all that we need to know answers to questions like that. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? We are in a series where we're going to study the book of Mark called Amaze. And we call it Amaze because people were amazed when they encountered Jesus. And as we encounter Jesus in this series, I hope that we uh, have that same awe and we see him as the people uh, saw him as they interacted with him as well. Um, this morning I want to cover four facts about following Jesus. Four facts of what it means to follow Jesus. And we're going to be in the same passage, the same uh, chapter we were last week. When I studied this chapter and went through it and I began to write a sermon, in my head I began writing two sermons because there's so much here and there's so much great stuff. And so uh, you may be saying, 
Didn't we just go through these passages last week? And the answer is yes, uh, but we're going to go through uh, them again, and we're going to see even deeper dimensions of what it's like, hopefully, Lord willing, uh, as we pray that he opens his word to us. But I want to look at what it means to really follow Jesus. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Mark chapter 1. Again, Mark's the second book of the New Testament. It's about three-quarters of the way through. If you're using the Bible that we have for you in the worship center, I'll be on page 887. And as Chris just showed you, you can all follow along in the Church Center app as well. Everything will be there. But I want to look at uh, these, this passage, Mark. We're going to look at the first 20 verses in the chapter. And the first thing that we're going to see right off the bat is that when it comes to following Jesus Christ, following Jesus is an old and new way of life. It's an old and new way of life. Let's look at the first three verses. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. It's an old and a new way. It's an old way because it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. The mind of God put together this way of following Christ, and it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. So the author Mark pulls scriptures back from those days. And then if you look at even how this book begins, it says, the beginning. I can almost hear the echoes of Genesis chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a calling back that is a congruency that pulls these things together and shows that this is the way of God. Beginnings. It means a new way, a new beginning. God has always known how he intends for us to live, yet when we encounter him, there is a newness that happens in our life. When we encounter him, there's a recreation of sorts. That's why I love how this book harkens back to the creation of the world in Genesis 1. Because when we encounter Jesus, there's a recreation that happens in our hearts, in our souls, and in our minds. One of the things we see in this new and old way of life is the only one worth following is Jesus Christ. He is the only one worth following. If you look at how this starts, the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he enters in there, son of God. Now, we look at that being church for a long time and say, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. That's his title. He's Jesus Christ, the son of God. We're talking about his gospel. But when this was first written, the original hearers who heard this would have had a whole different reaction to those very first few words of the opening of this letter. You see, Son of God was a title that many Roman emperors took on themselves. Julius Caesar called himself the Divine Julius, the Son of God. His son, Octavian, was known as the Son of the Divine. After him, Augustus, Tiberius, and Nero, the rulers of the Roman Empire, who were occupying the world that Jesus was in in this time, often called themselves the Son of God. And the news that they would bring, news about how great their empire empire is going to be, news about how great it was when they fought in battles, news about arrivals of when they would have kids, was dubbed good news, or the same word that was used here as gospel. So when Mark opens up and says, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
He was saying that Jesus is among the greatest rulers of the world. In fact, he is the greatest. This would have been scandalous at the time. This would have been a declaration of war in the Roman Empire. If that was declared, they would take the name of this person, seek them out, and try to destroy them immediately because it was a sign of uprising. To say that you were on the same level of a Roman emperor, even higher, was scandalous at the time. So we see that the only one worth following is Jesus Christ because he stands above all else. The opening verses also show us that following Jesus is a way, kind of like we just sang about this morning. It's a way. It's a way of life. It's a pattern of living. The way, the word way is used twice in verses 2 and 3, and path is used in verse 3. You see this pathway metaphor. Mark is showing us that following Jesus is a way of life, meaning it's that we are to adapt to his pattern. We are to live our lives by observing how Jesus lived his life and not try to copy Jesus. We're not going to copy him, but we are to pattern our lives through his teachings and his ways, what he would stand for. Mark is saying Jesus is the way, so shape your life around what you see throughout the rest of this book of Mark. Shape your life around the things you see of how Jesus lives, what he speaks, what he describes. And the rest of this letter describes the way of Jesus. So number one, following Jesus is an old and a new way. Number two, following Jesus means a radical life change. It means a radical life change. Look at verses four to eight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were coming out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel-haired garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's a few different things we see in this radical change of living in these verses 4 to 8. First, right off the bat, there's a repentance of forgiveness. And we talked last week about what that exactly means, but what I want you to grab here is that word repentance. In the Greek, it means metanoia. What that means is to turn from the ways of your life and turn towards the ways of God. It means to reorient your life. It means to a total reorientation to the things of God. That's the pattern. That's the way that this is supposed to be. To follow Jesus means that you are going to turn the orientation, the direction, the attention of the gaze of your heart from your own desires, your own way of life, your own goals, your own bucket list, the things you want, and you're going to sacrifice those and you're going to turn those towards the things of God. That's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. There's a reorientation that happens. And the other thing is this idea of repentance of forgiveness. It's not just a one-time thing. The way this is worded here is that this is a lifestyle This is a repentance in terms of a lifestyle for a lifetime. 
The Jesus way is reorienting yourself to God in a lifetime process. That no matter how long your days are here, you're going to live your life in a way that reorientates from the focus being on you and what you want to the focus being on God and what he wants. It's a constant life of repentance. It's a way of life that consistently reorients. So when you blow it, which we all will do, because we all are sinners and we all still have a sinful nature. When we blow it, we consistently repent. We consistently turn. We consistently grow and do all we can to reorient our lives in partnership with the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus Christ. The way of following Jesus is a radical life change. It means dying to the old ways of living. When you reorient your life, you let go of former ways of living. Some of you may be hanging on to old ways of living, trying to follow Jesus Christ. It won't work. You have to renounce your sin. You have to turn fully to God and ask him to give you power to walk in the way he wants you to walk. The other part of this life change we see here is a common theme we'll see again and again, but this new radical way of living It involves sacrifice and suffering. In verse 6, we see John the Baptist's clothing. He wore camel hair garment, leather belt in his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He lived in a way where there was a de-emphasis. He de-emphasized the ways of the world. He detached from the ways of the world. They say, you read that and you say, that's weird. Yeah, it's weird because it's not like the norm. It's not what everyone did. He was different than the normal way of life because he didn't want to be caught up into the northern, normal patterns of this world. So he lived differently. He lived radically differently. He detached from that. We cannot pattern our lives after the ways of the world we live in. As followers of Jesus Christ, we reorient. It's a radical shift. It's not a small thing. Living for Jesus is hugely different than people who are living not for Jesus. There's a huge shift that takes place. Also, the location, the wilderness. In this day, the wilderness was the place where the demons run. People believed you came in at night out of the wilderness because awful things happened in the wilderness. You did not want to be in the wilderness. But one of the things we see here as John is in the wilderness is that when a follower of Jesus has a location like the wilderness, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in that place. That's another part of this life change. John's clothing and how he act is an allusion to 2 Kings chapter 2 where it talks about this prophet named Elijah. And there's a similarity between John the Baptist and Elijah. And one of the similarities is they had a special anointing of the Holy Spirit that now is given to people who choose to follow Jesus Christ post-resurrection. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit and his power and his presence is dwelling with inside of you. Following Jesus involves sacrifice and suffering. But here's the thing. It involves a suffering that you cannot deal with in your own strength. It involves a suffering that you must have the power of God residing within you to face. 
It involves a sacrifice of leaving that has to be empowered by his Holy Spirit. And when you live in the way where you reorient your life towards God, it will always mean sacrifice and suffering. I think in today's evangelical American Christian culture, we've tried to soften that blow. We've tried to accommodate what it's like to follow Jesus. We try to say it's really cool and we could take these things of the world and wrap it in and make a really cool package. But the truth is Jesus tells us in his word to follow him involves sacrifice. It involves suffering. We don't like to hear that. But the suffering and the sacrifice prepare us for the eternal award and blessing that comes when we stand before God in the next life. Missionary Karen Watson counted the cost of following Jesus. That's why when she sensed a call on her life to go to a Muslim nation to help and proclaim and live out the gospel, she obeyed. Most evangelical Christians in America would say what she's doing is absolutely crazy. Whatever you do, don't do that. But she listened to a voice that was stronger than the voices around her, including the voices of her family. And she accepted the call to go and live out the gospel in Iraq. And she went there and she provided humanitarian relief. She was able to give the gospel to some people who desperately needed it. But one fateful day, fateful day she was gunned down in the country she came to serve. And she died. She wrote a letter to her pastor before she left and said, hold this, and if something horrible happens to me on this life, know it'll be glorious in the next, and you can read it when you hear the news. And so her pastor opened the letter, and it began with, you're only reading this if I died. And it included some gracious words to her family and friends to be read at her funeral. And then it left this simple summary of following Jesus Christ. She wrote, To obey was my objective, to suffer was expected, his glory my reward. To obey was my objective, to suffer was expected, his glory my reward. That was not a tragedy. That was not a tragedy. She sensed the call of God on her life to go and live out the gospel in a hostile place where she endured suffering in this world, but now is living for the reward of God. And to the point that that sounds absolutely ludicrous and absolutely insane to us, we need to understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ. You are no longer your own. You don't have a right to decide what you do. Following Jesus Christ means you've transferred ownership over to him and he will empower you in whatever he calls you to do and experience in this life for his glory and for his honor because it's all about him. And the reward this young lady is going to receive when she gets to the heaven, where it all makes sense, though it may not make sense now, it's in those places we have to trust if we're going to follow Christ So following Jesus means a radical reorientation of my life to his will. Following Jesus also means living a new identity. Living a new identity. Look at verses 9 to 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. 
As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. What an amazing picture. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In this set of two verses, three verses, you see the Trinity in its fullness of form. You see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was baptized. The heavens were open. The sky opened up. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove. There's a voice from the Father saying, You are my Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, baptism defines your identity. And in this place, we see the Father of the universe pouring out his fatherhood upon his son, Jesus Christ, received as the Son of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Father in heaven is affirming the pleasure of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, in a sense here, passes the test. He's the divinely appointed son of God, pleasing to the Father, superior to every earthly ruler. This was a coronation of his kingdom and his kingship in a way that they've never seen in this place before. And so he has this amazing, amazing display of love and power and affirmation from God. And then what happens after that? Does he immediately go into glory? No. Plunge back in the place where the demons and the jackals run goes right into the wilderness. Look at verses 12 to 13. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. When you look at this place, this is the pattern of living when you're truly following Jesus. It's almost like you are carried along by other things. Jesus appears extremely passive here. If you look at how this is word, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was there 40 days, tempted by Satan. Satan is tempting. He was with the wild animals, and angels were serving. The Spirit drove, Satan tempted, angels served. He's almost just staying in this place, walking out life, and in this we see the conflict of spiritual forces that are behind the scenes. Spirit of God warring against the angels and Satan. And Jesus is kind of there relying on their power from what it looks like being very passive. He's given us a picture of dependency for us as his followers. The word tempted there, we hear temptation, we think different things. The word tempted there, periazzo, is, was regular speak in early Christian times. And this is what it means. It means being probed and proved often through hardship and adversity in order to determine the extent of one's loyalty or devotion to a given commission. Probed and proved often through hardship and adversity in order to determine the extent of one's loyalty or devotion to a given commission. That's what it means to be tempted. That's what Jesus was going through. And in that place, he was proven faithful always. But even as the Son of God, if you notice in those verses, he had to rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Even as the Son of God, and this is, if you 
want to even dive into this further, you can look at Luke chapter 4 where there's several times it says Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Jesus in the power of the Spirit. There is a reliance, a dependency on God to do what he had to do. With angels serving, assisting in the battle, this picture we see of Jesus is an example for us that to follow Jesus Christ means dependency. Part of this new identity means we must rely on God and not ourselves to live in this world. There's a rest. There's a trust. There's a trust beyond the questions and the doubts, a dependency on God. And that's hard for us as human beings living in America in 2020. We like to take charge. We like to make a way. We like to get it done. The life of the follower of Jesus relinquishes that and through the power of the Holy Spirit relies on God for help. Finally, number four, following Jesus means we become gospel people. Following Jesus means we become gospel people. Look at verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. He's announcing the rule and the reign of God is now inaugurated and beginning on earth. When Jesus came, he began the kingdom of God on earth. Followers of Jesus are citizens of a new kingdom. They're citizens of a different kingdom. And the way we enter this kingdom, the way we belong to this kingdom, is through two things it says here. Repent and believe. You turn from your sins to God like we shared, and then you believe. You step into your whole heart that he is the way, the truth, and the life. You believe, meaning you relinquish your rights because you understand and acknowledge who he is. When the Bible talks about believing, it's not just talking about an intellectual decision in your mind that you believe he is the son of God. It means that you've bought into, that you've fallen in love with, that you've casted your soul and your life completely upon the arms of Jesus Christ. And you live now for him. He is the one who rules and reigns in your life. And he rules and reigns because he is the king of kings. And the kingdom he came to establish is not complete yet. See, I know that this might be hard to read, but the graphic will help somewhat. There's an age leading up to the time where Jesus came and what we see here in Mark 1. And in this graph, they call it the present age. The people of God went through exile, oppression. There's a reign of sin and death. And then Jesus Christ comes in his life and teaching, resurrection, ascension. And that is where the kingdom begins. He acknowledges, he, he begins the kingdom of God on earth, officially. And then he lives he dies, he's risen from the dead, and when he comes again the second time, that's when the kingdom will be finalized. That's when the kingdom will be established. So people say, well, I'm a Christian now, but I still have to deal with sickness and disease and hardship and these injustices. Why is that the case? Because it's not done yet. It began, but it's not completed. It began, but it's not culminated to the final big ending of where this is all going. I had a friend of mine who was a pastor who left the faith. 
And he said, I left because I saw all these injustices happening and, and, and I, I let the world speak into my heart to realize that if God was real, these things wouldn't have happened. You see, he was stuck here in the middle and he didn't understand that it isn't done yet. We're only in the middle of the movie. We have not come to the glorious ending. And when we get to the glorious ending, all suffering, all sickness, all disease, all satanic rule will bow to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, we live in the already but not yet. And while we live in the already but not yet, God even uses the fact that it's not even done yet to test our hearts to see who will be faithful. That's why when hardship comes and this adversity hits us, we stay clinging to God because we want to be people, we want to be children that are living in the already not yet with a faithfulness to the God who saved us. That our hearts mirror a faithfulness that we saw in Jesus who endured the cross because of the joy set before him went through suffering, knowing what the last chapter would be like. And when he comes, there's going to be a restoration of the kingdom. All injustices will be made just. There's going to be a freedom from oppression. And the presence of God will live in a new heavens and a new earth forever. See, don't get obsessed with the here and now. When you are a Christian, when you are following Jesus Christ, you live for a different kingdom, not the one you see before you 24-7. You live for a kingdom of God that is hidden, that's been established, but one day will come to full fruition. And in that place, it's going to be amazing. And in the meantime, we hang on and we trust and we endure the hardship that's before us. That's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Hugh Halter, an author of a book called The Tangible Kingdom, wrote this. He said, two weeks after 9-11, I was in Queens, New York, training church planters. Every night I walked down to a local Irish pub to eat dinner with some friends. A waitress named Fiona not only served us well, but she seemed curious about faith and what we were doing training pastors. Each evening our conversation deepened. So why would you help pastors lead their churches if churches really don't do much good, she asked. Knowing that one-third of her Irish friends in the 1980s and 1990s were sexually abused in the Catholic school system and that two of her friends were killed in Protestant Catholic fights gave me ample reason not to judge her criticism of organized religion. What could I say? How could I explain my love for Jesus without bringing the church into it? I simply talked to her about the kingdom of God. Fiona, Jesus came to offer an alternative way of life from the exclusive religious, sectarian, and sinful ways in which people live. He called it the kingdom. And it was huge for people back in his day and also for anyone looking for God today. I've never heard about the kingdom, she said. Tell me more. My final night in town as I came to say goodbye before flying back to Oregon, I heard Fiona yell over the crowded room, this is the guy I was telling you about. you got to hear how he talks about God. The bar room split and she called all of her friends over. They gathered around and she looked at me and said, tell them what you told me. You know, tell them about all that kingdom stuff. That night, everything changed for me. I started on a journey, a spiritual journey that pulled me out of my jaded, consumeristic, living-for-me Christianity. 
And what happened next? We simply grabbed a few friends and started a community that was committed to living out with others the kingdom way of life, and the church began. Part of this new identity is that we live in a community established by God in his kingdom where his beloved son rules and reigns, and he calls a group of people to follow him. Anywhere the kingdom is established, he calls people to join into the kingdom. Look at verses 16 to 20. As he passed along the Sea of Galilee, this is after the kingdom has been announced, he saw Simon and Andrew and Simon's brother casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired men and followed him. There had to be something so compelling about Jesus Christ. That these men would leave their careers, it says, immediately to follow him. Because when he announced the kingdom, it, would, it just resonated. This is the true way of life. And they left their way of life and adapted to his way of life because they saw true life. There was something compelling. Jesus said they, what he was. He announced his kingdom. They immediately accepted And they sacrificed. They left all that was familiar to them. They left all that would guarantee them income. They left all that would take care of their kids in an earthly sense. Because they saw something in him that was so much greater than the things and the stuff of this world. Because they saw true life. As one theologian put it, we are not to be surprised if living as Christians brings us to the place where we find we are at the end of our own resources and that we are called to rely on God who raises the dead. See, that's part of the Jesus way. When you get to the end of yourself and you realize you can't go on any further, that's part of what it means to follow Jesus. When you get to that place where you are at the end and you've exhausted all of your mentality of how to face what you're facing, you've exhausted all what people are telling you about how to face what you are facing, and you have to come right before God and say, God, you are my only hope. He is worthy of that place. And he will not let any down who come to him and acknowledge who he is in his faithfulness. Though it may feel like it, though it may cause us to endure suffering and pain, he will always be faithful because he alone is worthy. So getting to our original question, what does it really look like to follow Jesus? Well, according to this chapter, following Jesus is a lifelong journey of devotion to him that establishes his kingdom and will involve suffering and sacrifice. Following Jesus is a lifelong journey of devotion to him that establishes his kingdom and will involve suffering and sacrifice. The truth is, as Christians, we get really good at playing church. We get really good at just going through the motions. And as I 
bring this to the close, I think the Spirit of God is asking us at Crossview Church, do you really want to follow Jesus Christ? Do you really want to be about this kingdom? Because it means a way of life. It means a radical change. It means a new identity. It means becoming all about the gospel. And it means that suffering and sacrifice are guaranteed. If you look at the cost of John the Baptist, who proclaimed this way, it says right in our text in verse 14, we kind of went over it quickly, after John was arrested. You see, with Jesus and John and the disciples in this text, you see they are called, you see they are commissioned, and then you see that they suffer. Jesus was called, he was baptized, he was commissioned. And then in Mark 9.31 it says, Jesus talks about his end game on earth saying, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after he is killed, he will rise again three days later. And his disciples are called and they're commissioned and they suffered. It's part of the Jesus way. Following Jesus involves suffering and sacrifice And we like to avoid that at all costs as Americans living in 2020. But the truth is it gives birth to an amazing eternal reward. There's a guy in the Old Testament named Job. And if you're not familiar with the story, Job was a very rich man. And he endured suffering beyond suffering beyond suffering. Disease, financial hardship, his family fell apart, his marriage fell apart. It was just this constant battle of suffering and suffering and suffering. And it was all because Satan came and approached God and said, if I suffer him, he will deny you. And God said, took his hand off of Job and said, okay, go at it. And Job remained faithful and endured a suffering that many of us can't imagine. And at the very end of this letter about Job, this is what he wrote. He said, I've heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. See, if you adapt a surfacey, one toe in the water type of following Jesus, you'll hear reports about him. If you live out your life following Christ with maybe like 3 to 5% being in and not 100% all in, you might hear some reports about him. But when you go all in, regardless of the suffering and the sacrifice, regardless of the cost, that's where you see him. That's where you see God. And you see him not just in the life in the midst of the suffering and the sacrifice, but you will see him face to face when you die and you will enter into his eternal glory. Don't you want to see him? Don't you, wouldn't you rather be content knowing you're going to see God than just hear reports about him? Don't be a follower of Jesus that's content just getting little reports about what God is like. Be a follower that's willing to live, surrender, come what may, sacrifice and suffering for the glory of truly seeing who God is. May we be that kind of people. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, living in this life, in this world, in this time, in this place, there are so many voices. There are so many things that are contrary to how you designed us to live for you. I pray right now for all of us here at Crossview Church that we would be a people who would be faithful to what you've called us to. That the truth of what it means to follow Jesus Christ would mark our lives, not in a superficial way, not in a playing the part as an actor way, but in a real, true, heart-cut, soul-surrender, Bible-saturated, Jesus Christ-exalting kind of way. We can't do that on our own. We acknowledge we need your help to live such a life. We acknowledge our need before you now. But we declare who you are. We declare that as we sang this morning, you have no rival, you have no equal, and you are the way and the truth and the life. And God, I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would tear down any lie that would exalt anything or anyone in this world higher than who you are in our hearts. Let us apprehend and let us grab hold of who you are, Jesus Christ, Son of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.